You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Hope everybody is staying safe and healthy out there, and we want to wish an early happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, especially all those military moms and service members who are out there not only doing the job of our service members, but also doing the job at home and being wonderful mothers. Before we get started with this week's episode, just a reminder to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also subscribe on YouTube. Certainly want to grow our Hazard Ground followership as this community gets bigger and bigger each and every week, and we thank you guys for helping to spread the word. Make sure you guys leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Love hearing your reviews. Here are some great ones that we've gotten recently. This last one from JBPDAM, I guess it's JPB Dam, but he says, As a psychotherapist who works with a number of veterans, I genuinely appreciate this podcast. It explores so many facets of our service members' experiences, so few civilians have an opportunity to hear. I hope it strengthens the support our population has for our men and women who make the sacrifices beyond comprehension. Thank you for your hard work and effort. You know, one of the things we take pride in is the ability to discuss some of these really tough issues that veterans are facing. And so certainly we love hearing a review like that. And well, and this next one certainly gave me a laugh as it is titled the Joe Rogan of combat from quote trolling for laughs, but they write some podcasts have great features, great guest selection, great interviewer, great audio quality has a ground has it all. Mark has the rare ability to pull the best out of his guests. I've rarely ended a podcast with a burning question that Mark didn't ask. And I certainly appreciate that. And being called the Joe Rogan of combat is incredibly high praise. Rogan obviously is one of the biggest podcasts in America, but you know, that's one of the things that we really hope to get to with our guests is the deeper part of the stories that you don't hear. And if I can leave you guys not wondering anything about the guest or not having a question that we didn't ask, then I certainly feel like we're doing a good job at telling great stories and having the interviewer tell their story. And I think that really is the biggest part. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on that Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or go into the sponsors tab. We get a percentage of what you guys spend and we donate it right back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Again, hope everybody is staying safe and healthy. We want to make sure that we as veterans and fans of this podcast are leading the way with all of the rules that our local and state governments have put out, whatever state you're in listening to this, please follow the advice of your leaders and make sure that we're doing our best to combat COVID-19. And let's all get through this sooner rather than later. Joining us this week on the podcast, just an incredible guest with an incredible story. He is an Army Sergeant First Class who enlisted in the military after 9-11 and joined the historic 75th Ranger Regiment, deployed three times, once to Iraq, twice to Afghanistan. But his post-military career is nothing short of amazing. Everything from working in corrections to the fire department from there, moving on to being part of a clothing company, and now currently in acting, podcasting, public speaking, publishing books, running other side businesses. Just an amazing story, all while he is still a drill sergeant in the Army Reserves. It is Sergeant First Class Vincent Rocco Vargas joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Vincent, brother, welcome, man. Thanks for being here. What's going on, brother? How you doing? I'm great. That is an amazing, amazing lineup that you have set for yourself. First, before we get into anything, the nickname Rocco, how'd you get it? Uh, you know, that kind of came from a night of going from bar hopping. You know, I'm not, I mean, at that time, I wasn't the biggest of drinkers. I was more like watching my buddies and making sure no one got into fights and, and making sure everyone went from one bar to the next. And um, Matt, my buddy Matt just got back from deployment. So I'm making sure he's not drinking too much and just kind of being the father figure kind of dude that I am. Just watching everyone, they, they said I was kind of like a bouncer named Rocco, and they just made it up. And then from there, it kind of just blew up. It got posted on social media one day, and you know, and honestly, that's really just took off from there. And and by coincidence, it's my great grandfather's name is right. Rocco, R O Q U E, and they call him Rocco. And so it's this funny, weird twist of fate. All right, so go back to the beginning. How and why did you get in the military? You know, I joined the military uh, in 2003. I was I just became academically ineligible in the military. I was excuse me, academically ineligible for college baseball. I'm I've been playing baseball since I was four, so that was my life. And then in 2002, my first child was born, 
And it started kind of changing my direction of what I need to do with my life. Is baseball going to be the thing that, that I find success in? Is that going to be, am I going to get a pro career off that and I can afford to take care of my child or not? And then when I became academically ineligible, it kind of answered the question for me. I was sitting at a bar one night watching um, some Marines put a, an American flag over the Saddam statue and they pulled it down. A really, really cool moment in, in the American history of, of the Iraq war. And I'm sitting there at a bar drinking with a, with a veteran who worked with me at Texas Roadhouse, and we're just talking about military. I watched his family crying on, on CNN or, or Fox, whatever it was, and they were just saying how much they're just proud of him. And I remember thinking to myself, like, man, I don't think my family's ever really been proud of the decisions I've made in the past several years. And, um, you know, so it was two parts. I didn't want to be the guy sitting at a bar 40 years from now without the war stories that I'm watching on TV. I didn't want to be the dad who couldn't afford to support his child, you know, and, and I wanted to be able to give her the financial means in some aspect. And if the worst case scenario, I was killed in combat, you know, I would at least be a hero to my daughter. And sure. so I decided, like, I went to the recruiter the next day and, uh, you know, I went through talking to each one of them and really doing my due diligence on where I wanted to go. And I decided with the army. And so I joined. Did you know you wanted to be a ranger? I really didn't – I know I wanted to try, try and do the hardest thing that I could. I scored you know, a, one, a 108, and you needed a 110 to do the special forces contract. Yeah. And so the next best thing they said was an Army Ranger. Um, I, I said, yeah, let's do it. I went home and watched uh, Black Hawk Down, mm -hmm. and I was like, all right, I can do that. That seems like a cool job. I really had no idea what it was. I didn't even know how to research it at the time. I just showed up to basic training saying, cool, I have a ranger contract. That means I can't quit all the way till I get past it. While I was in the, in the basic training is where I really learned everything about ranger battalion. And I started getting more nervous thinking like, holy crap, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm, I can do this, you know? And, and at the same time, um, more excited as well because I've always been someone who's competitive and, and athletic enough to, to to just be successful in anything like hard. So I was like, oh, I think I can I can make this happen. So it became more exciting for me in basic training when I learned more about it. Just out of curiosity, uh, why and how did you become academically ineligible? Was there a story? Or was just the kind of a gradual downhill slide of grades? Oh, brother, uh, I'm dyslexic, man, and so any kind of English in any aspect has been a challenge. And, you know, I never reached out to try and get help. I had tutors. It was just like, it was all, everything you can think of of someone who's just immature and, and really too afraid to ask for help. You know, I, I was obviously partying all the time. Uh, I was drinking, I was going out late. I was, I was focused on all the wrong things, but school. And, and, you know, we can list those and we already know what those may be. And that's really where my focus was, was being the cool guy on campus and not so much the, 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 you know, the scholar that I should have been. And that's what happened, man. I really genuinely, I have the, I have the transcript. I failed ceramics class. That's <laughs> what put me. Yeah. That's what put me over the edge, man. I remember I was supposed to drop the class to try and keep my, my GPA at a decent level. And I ended up sleeping in and missing the drop date. And that's what screwed my whole college career. Wow. Um, yeah. So as far as your baseball is concerned, when you put that down, now you're like me. See, I thought baseball was going to be my life, and I did it all the way up through college and everything else. And uh, does it ever bother you when you look back on it, and you know maybe you watch a game today? Does it kind of get inside you that that could have been you? Yeah, man. You know, I have like genuinely, I believe I I had what it takes to to go pro. I just mentally wasn't mature enough at the time. Um, and I have friends that are in the pro now, and I'm like, oh. Or guys who have even gotten close, right? Guys who are in the single A, double A, triple A, and, and either made it or didn't make it. You know, like they lived the dream that I held on to for so long. And yeah, it fucking hurts, dude. Like I didn't watch professional baseball for about six years. And then I finally started like falling back in love with the game because like my kids started doing it. And I'm like, all, all right, right I, I'll coach it. But um, definitely, you know, I talk about a lot of people struggle with transition in front of the military, I struggled harder with my transition out of baseball. I lost the one thing I've done my whole life. The, the personality that I had and everything that it was of me was built through baseball. And I believe baseball is actually what helped me in my life because of the resiliency in a sport that is meant for 
just all the hardships you can think of, you know, minor success. You as a bass player understand exactly what I'm talking about. It's a sport made of failure. Yeah. It's, it's hitting a a round ball with a round bat, trying to hit it square. It's you're a good, you're a good hitter. If you're 30%, it's just all these difficulties that, you know, we, I have grown accustomed to, and I have found ways of just dusting myself off, getting back in the box. And I've taken that same mentality through my life now. And I think that's, what's helped me so much more than others. I think I've built resiliency in myself accidentally through baseball. All right. So to that end, you were in basic training. You started to realize how hard Ranger school was going to be. And you're like, what did I get into? When you get to Ranger school, give me the kind of the first sensory perception you get of it. What's the first thing that overwhelms you? You know, day one, you get there and and this is Ranger assessment selection program is what it's called now. Uh, Ranger indoctrinal program is what it was called then. And this is the selection to get into Ranger battalion, right? Day one, you go into this fenced in area. It's all blacked out and they close the gate and they say, no one can see us in here. We can do whatever the fuck we want. We don't have rules. And then you're like, Oh crap, this isn't basic (laughs) training anymore. Like this isn't airborne. Like these dudes are scary and intimidating. Some of these dudes were in the movie from black Hawk down. Like these guys have seen some shit. And so Right away, like my anxiety was like, oh, crap, man, like this is real. And so they made us dump all our bags and they're doing all this, you know, all this stuff. And and that's when I realized like, oh, man, there's a whole different level of military I didn't expect. And as well as the intimidating side of like, you know, pretty much saying they don't have any rules here. We can do whatever we want. I was like, all right, cool. This is this is the, the real deal. And so, you know, that's when I knew I was like, this is a whole different space for me. But like at the same time, man, there was – it was like this thing I've done my whole career. I've looked around in the room and kind of, you know, you size everyone up and I'm like, I still feel good. I feel like I belong here, you know? And, and that just kind of continued throughout the three weeks of selection there. The only problem I had in selection was the written test again, cause I don't read well. And so um, I failed the first written test and I had to take the makeup test and I barely passed that makeup test by one point. If I didn't, they would have recycled me. And to, to be honest, I don't know if I would have went through it again. I probably would have said, no, I'm good. Send me to Worldwide, wherever the Army needs me. Wow. So what was the toughest thing about Ranger School itself for you? If you're talking Ranger School itself, um, you know, that's it's one of those things where you have all these different personalities and trying to motivate all of them to do the mission, right? Whatever that mission may be. And if it's your day of grading, um, you want them to to be successful. And, and in turn, when it's their day of grading, they want us to. And so trying to find a way to lead, you know, 10 different guys with 10 different personalities and all moving in the right direction, right? So leadership in, in, in times of hunger and sleep deprived, right? And so that's the challenge. It sucks carrying weight. It sucks being, uh, you know, malnourished. It sucks all this stuff. But now it sucks because you have to motivate all these other dudes to get your a passing grade for you. So that's a challenge, man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you graduate from Ranger School and you put that tab on, how proud were you? And it was great. It was actually, you know, it's kind of, it's those moments that you, you, you'll never forget for the rest of your life. And at the same time, you know that there's so much more in the future that you can be doing. And, and it's, it's the testament to how far we can push ourselves in any degree. I think that's what all that said was like, oh, yeah, I can endure the suck. And I can push myself a lot harder than I ever expected. And you, you take that with you for the rest of your life. Do you remember who pinned on your Ranger tab? My father did. Did he? Yeah, man. My, my father came out there. You know, um, I was a distinguished honor graduate that, in that class. And just by dumb luck and chance, right? They didn't catch me sleeping when, when I was. And, the, you know, I didn't get in <laughs> trouble for, for, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't get caught and leaving the patrol base to take a shit, right? Like, like just by chance, I was the guy that just had the least amount of uh, uh, no-goes, right? And, um, or major minuses, whatever. And so I got distinguished honor graduate. And so it was really cool to see him standing, sitting right in front of me and curious to like, why am I standing, standing in front of everybody, you know? And, um, he, when he pinned me, my dad was a Marine. He's kind of a really hard ass. And he goes, man, you're, you're almost as good as Marine now. And as a joke, and I just laugh, like, uh, yeah, I expected that one from him, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, it was just a cool moment for us. And he's super proud, you know, sometimes he wears the Ranger tabs t-shirt. And I tell him like you're gonna get you're gonna get jumped one day, dude. You're not a ranger. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's just my father being super proud of my accomplishments. And you mentioned earlier that you didn't think your family was proud of your decisions. To see your dad in that moment and the amount of pride he had for what you had done, did that sort of erase in your mind some of the poor decisions you made along the way? 
Yeah, man. It felt like, you know, I'm, I'm obviously going in the right direction now. You know what I mean? Like things are going good, you know? And I always live on, like I could, I can screw something up tomorrow and all the goods are gone. You know what I mean? But, well, it's only one, one bad thing screws up a thousand attaboys, right? <laughs> yeah. But you know, but it, it also showed me like, you know, I am worthy of, of a, of a, you know, a pat on the back for my father, you know what I mean? And, and I'm proving to him I am worth it, you know? And it was a little bit of a test to myself and also to, to watch him to be proud. You know, I, I didn't expect my dad to be there, to be honest. I thought I was going to graduate and just go home. Uh, most of my military career, I've just done it all alone. But my father definitely bought the ticket with my uncle and they both, you know, both Marines and who went, they both went to basic training together. They signed like that buddy system back in the day. And so they were both there with me and it was a really cool moment for me. All right. So what's next? I mean, obviously you're headed off to the Ranger Regiment and, and how quickly do you end up at a unit and then onto a deployment? Well, it's, you know, it's funny. It's, it's different how it works out. You do selection first. So before I've even got my Ranger tab, you have to get through selection. Once you get through selection, then you get assigned to Ranger Battalion. Mm -hmm. So like, I didn't have a Ranger tab yet. You're a nobody. You're like the new kid on the block who gets, you know, who gets hazed pretty much all the time. And that was a hard time, but within 30 days of getting into Ranger Battalion, 30 to about 35 days, we already were deploying to Afghanistan. Oh, really? And, so um, wait, you deployed before you actually went to Ranger school? Yeah. So, oh, okay. So wait, yeah, Ranger Regiment's a little different. You you got to get your you got to get into the battalion first, and then you have to earn your slot for Ranger school. So I didn't go to Ranger school until 2005. I got in in 2000 late 2003 oh gotcha so there, okay yeah so, so there's about a good year of ranger regiment um you know trying to earn my spot for ranger school i did two deployments before i got my tab so if you had not had those deployments do you think you would have been distinguished honor grad no i don't think so i think i mean those those definitely had me more experienced than a lot of the guys uh in some aspects I think I was more mature than most of the guys going to Ranger School. You know, you have these officers who are older, but you also have guys who just have no experience in anything. And so I was like 24 years old, 25 maybe. Uh, I was a PFC in Ranger School when I got there. And people were like, man, I thought you were a Sergeant First Class or, or, or an E6 or something. I'm like, no, nah, man, I'm just PFC Vargas trying to get through it. But, you know, I, I had a lot of experience prior to military and also in the military that felt I felt really confident in leadership positions. And so um, that's definitely what's helped me. And, and Ranger Battalion really raises their 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 youth or their their, you know, their subordinates to be to be badasses at, at Ranger School. We, we expect our our subordinates to to be ready for that occasion to be in charge. Like I, it wasn't uncommon for training where all of a sudden you know, I'm as a PFC or a private leading the pack in, in entering clearing sessions so you can learn, you know, two steps a, above of you uh, leadership positions. So we were all – I feel Ranger Battalion's pretty well at training their men ready to go. Okay, so let's back up then. Uh, let's get yeah. to that first deployment because, you know, you, you get to the regiment, you're a wet-behind-the-ears kid. Obviously, you don't have the tab on, so everyone's looking at you sideways. But where are you headed to and, and what's your mission? Yeah, we're headed to Afghanistan, man. And, you know. And this is what time frame again? What year? 2004. Okay. It's 2004, um, I believe, sometime in the summer, if it was. And, you know, we stage in, 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 in certain parts of Afghanistan. And, you know, the mission, what we do, is, let's just be honest. You know, Ranger Battalion, we show up and we have a mission to kill or capture high-value targets, you know, and whatever that may be. And then there's also times where we're out there looking to 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 find more information and more intelligence to follow on missions. And so we're we're going to Afghanistan early on in 2004. I mean, sometimes we're still depends on what base we're at. We're either pissing in tubes or whatnot. We're sleeping in in tents. And um and it was an interesting thing, man. Like I was definitely nervous, thinking like, oh crap, was this was this what I wanted for myself? At the same time, you know, there's still that little boy in you that enjoys the, 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 the scariness of what combat is and the camaraderie, right? I tell people all the time, like, combat was easy. I didn't have to worry about bills. I didn't have to worry about drama, sure, yeah. relationship drama. I, I just went there to just, you know, play army with the boys, you know, and, and that really was a, a good time. I remember a squad leader telling me, you know, you don't have to worry. Uh, you know, you go out here and there's very small percentage will actually get to see combat, but you know, when we get there, uh, you know, we, we, we pretty much got to see 
some engagements early on in, in the deployment, which was pretty good for a lot of us to have just more experience in the follow on deployments, you know, so scary time, but at the same time, it was just a, a cool experience and to follow on to that within I come home from my first deployment, feeling good about it. Afghanistan's such a different space in Iraq. So like, absolutely, you know, and then all of a sudden, six months later, we turn around and head to Iraq and we're in Mosul. And that was like my first deployment where I can say we had just crazy amount of work and it was exciting. It was fun. It was, it was, I, I think the most of my experience was in that deployment and, and everything we did. When were you in Mosul? In 2005-ish, summer-ish. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was, that's when I was in Baghdad at the same time, um, which was a, which, a crazy time. And I don't know how it was in the north, but Baghdad, you know, it's all the violence in 05 and 06 that led to the surge in 07. So it, yeah. was, a, it was one of the worst times to be in Iraq. And, and at that point, Afghanistan had actually cooled down a little bit, right? Yeah, you know, you know what I like to explain to people is like Afghanistan is kind of like um, you could be very complacent, you know, they're nothing, 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 and all of a sudden, boom, something. But in Iraq, I felt like every time we left the wire, there was something. Right? Oh yeah, there was engagements, and 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 that was also a really good thing for us because we expected every time you go on a mission, there's probably going to be action, and that's a good place to be. You're ready for it, you know. Afghanistan, it's real easy to get complacent when, you know, dry hole, dry hole, dry hole, then boom, and now action, you know? So Iraq was, uh, was a good time and, and we did a lot of good stuff as, as a unit and we, we, we just did our jobs, man. And I could say that that to me still hands down was the best freaking platoon deployment I've ever been on with a bunch of studs and some that are not with us anymore today. You know what I mean? It was just an incredible time. What happened with, with those guys? Do you remember? Yeah, the next deployment, man, when I was um, – after, after you know, my – we lost two guys. Uh, it was actually, you know, the 14-year anniversary was just recently. Um, Rick and Dale, uh, they were squad leader and team leader. Rick was probably one of the most influential leaders in the Ranger Regiment at the time, just a really young, experienced stud and someone I look up to my whole life and still to this day. Like I'll, I'll never stop talking about him. But um, I got injured in, a, in ranger school. I had a shoulder injury. Uh, so I graduated with uh, brachial plexus nerve damage. My right arm was completely dead. Um, and it took about a year for the nerves to grow back. So as I graduated ranger school in December 2005, I'm trying to get to this next deployment with the guys. And you know the battalion physician's assistant denied my deployment status. So they sent me to language course. So, or it, the other way around, they denied it. And, and then, yeah, it's something like they sent me to language course. And so I come back from language course, um, and about two weeks before the battalion redeploys home, you know, we get the call that Sergeant Barraza and Sergeant Brim were killed in action, um, you know, entering a room and, um, you know, just the most unfortunate thing. And, you know, that kind of changed really the path of my life from then on out. Um, you know, I, we, we made the calls to the families. We, we did everything we needed to do. I packed all their gear and I actually flew with them to California to, um, carry their caskets to their grave. And, uh, you know, that was a heavy thing for me, you know, to see, you know, just a year prior to that, I lost a really good friend in Ranger Battalion to a uh, a training incident. We were basically trained together, airborne together and ripped together. And, um, you know, he was killed in, in training, just an unfortunate incident that happens. And that was like the first time as a grown adult, I cried. Right. And then, and then fast forward one year, Rick and Dale to two guys, like I, I shared a locker pretty much with Dale next to each other. And it was just, it's just a hard thing for anyone to deal with, especially at a young age and, and doing what we do. The camaraderie is so tight and so close our families all knew each other, you know what I mean? We're, we're in weddings together, you know, that kind sure, of stuff. Yeah. And so, and so that's something I've carried with me for a very long time. And it's something that's kind of steered the path of what I do today as well, uh, because of those two. And so that was in 2006. And then my last deployment was 2007 back in Afghanistan. And I swear to you, every mission I was like, I, you know, I had a little piece of them in the back of my head thinking like, Oh man, it, it was harder and harder for me to, to enjoy the job when I was like so upset with them, you know, not with them, but the fact that they, you know, they, they weren't able to just exist anymore. It really, really fucked my head, man. 
how much does it bother you that you weren't there with them? That eats me up every day, man. That's that's been the hang up, right? That's been uh, I'm a big guy. Maybe I could have, maybe I would have taken a few on the chest, you know. Maybe I could have, you know, taken a few of those rounds, you know. Um, maybe this, maybe that, should have, could have, would have, right? That's that's what chews me up every day. And uh, for years, for years, I was destroying myself in in honor of them in my head, right? I was telling myself it was in honor of them because I love them so much and I care about them. I'm gonna I'm gonna give them a piece of me. I'm going to drink for them, like everything you can think of, all the silly stuff that a lot of our community does. And really, for some reason, we do. But in the end, it doesn't make any sense. And so, yeah. I wonder, you know, you weren't there, and you talk about taking rounds in the chest and everything else. Do you ever cross that thought with, okay, I take some rounds in the chest, and now my daughter grows up without a father? Yeah, man. And you know what? I'm almost okay with that. You know, like... Isn't that I a strange those, dichotomy? <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's this thing to me. It's like they were better men than me. And, I'll, and, I, and I believe that. And I believe that they would have accomplished more than I ever have. And it sucks because the world will not get to see their leadership and their personality. And, you know, their own child won't be able to see them live. Uh, and so it eats me alive. And, you know, I actually joined the military ready to sacrifice myself for my kids and, and for other soldiers to the left and to the right. And so, yeah, I mean, that's why I've been hung up on years. Like it sucks for my daughter, but like this was the original intent, <laughs> you know. And um, now, you know, fast forward to right now in this moment, uh, there's so much I want to get done. And I would feel really bad if um, I cut my life short for my kids because I feel like, and now I realize how much they need me. Yeah. So I mean, does it, yeah. when you say it, I'm hearing it. I'm sorry to cut you off, but it's just like, you know, uh, to think of when I think of bad in general, bad stuff in life, you know, you have bad moments, bad days, like, God, I'm just, you know, I just like to escape the world for a little bit. Right. And then you yeah. just stop and think about well, what about my kids growing up without their dad? And, and it yeah. puts a, it's a dead stop, you know, halt, change direction, you know, and, and it just clears everything off the deck for you. And it's amazing that, you know, in those moments, you're so saddened about the loss of your friends and your platoon mates that you can't even put that normal thought back in your head. Yeah. You know, and I, I just, I, I've always found that, I, I guess it's almost like enlightenment when you're able to realize that, hey, my, my friends are gone. And, and the guys that I train with and the guys that I went to war with and the guys that I bled for are gone uh, and I'm still here. And, that, you know, that's the essence of survivor's guilt, right? I mean, but, you know, you're living on for something more because put the shoe on the other foot, you would want them to live their life for their family, not because you are gone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Tough, tough so stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, you know what's crazy is like, you know, so let's, let, I'll fast forward this even more. Like you, right. So you got, you got Afghanistan. I get out of Afghanistan. I come home and it's, I could either jump onto another deployment or get out. And, and it was like, well, I remember Sean Braza saying he wanted to be a border patrol agent, right? That's what we had conversation in the squad room. Just talk about what are we going to do next? And he's like, I want to be a border patrol agent. They have a special operations unit. And I took that to heart, man. And, and it was one of these things where I started to try and you know, carve the path of my life and what he would make him proud. And like, how can I live his dream? You know, and, and, you know, after getting out in 2007 and doing the corrections, the first thing I did was apply for the border patrol. And, um, you know, and it was, it was, that's how much of an impact and that's how profound, you know, he was in my life as a voice, you know, and, you know, eventually I actually became a border patrol agent and I became a special operations guy for the border patrol and it was all it was all i guess kind of in the memory of you know ricardo barraza so you know these he had a huge impact man when you make that decision to leave the military was it a tough one or was it something that you just knew it was time no, it was and let me rephrase leave active yeah. duty because you're still in the reserves just for the audience i want, yeah. to, want to clear that up yeah, leaving active is, is always hard because, you know, you get comfortable with just the system, right? Like with money on the 1st and the 15th, it's easy. You figure out what you, you know what you're going to wear. You know what you're going to do. You know where you're going to go. And um, that gets pretty easy. And you get comfortable with family life and everything to be on this kind of system. But um, 
I wanted more. I wanted to try to do, I wanted to try for, for CAG selection, right? I was interested in trying out for Delta. I was interested in doing more things, but at the same time, I had the fear now in my head and the anger of losing those two men and like kind of like leaving my family behind, watching the, the pain on their family. You know, it kind of, it kind of it haunted me for a little while. You know, I got to see the families and I gave them their, their gold stars and I watched the pain in their eyes and, and, it, and it kind of haunted me. And I was like, you know, part of me is like, I don't know if I'm even good enough for it anymore. I don't know if emotionally I'm good for it anymore, you know? Sure. And um, the, my wife at the time, um, she said, you know, I'm done. She goes, if you decide to join uh, a re-up, then I'm going to go ahead and leave either way. If you want to continue this marriage and, and our three kids at the time, only three. And she's like, um, I would like you to get out. And so, you know, I got out for, for trying to be the family man that I want to be for my kids. And at the same time, give myself some opportunity to try and do more things. It's always a tough decision. So as you make that transition, uh, you look back on it. I mean, was there anything you'd do differently? Because transition is tough. I mean, do, do you wish you had gone down a different road? I mean, how does that whole thing reconcile with you? When you're talking about transitioning out of the military, yeah. out of active duty. Sure. You know, I don't know if I ever handled it right for about 10 years. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was like the FOMO, the fear of missing out, you know, getting the phone calls from the guys, the emails from the guys and, and explaining the next deployment and things that happen. You know, I knew Leroy Petrie was going to get a Medal of Honor before anyone else did because I oh, get really? a phone call. From, yeah, I get a phone call from my buddy telling me what happened. And I'm like, yo, that's a that's going to be a Medal of Honor. I guarantee it. You know, and so it's these things that like I hate that I missed. I wish I was there to help to be a part of it. Um, you know, losing some guys in some deployments, you know, Joel Clarkson and and and, and you know, it's just it's just tough, right? Just to see all the guys that you love to to get hurt or get injured or lose their lives and not be there for it i felt like it continued to disappoint and so to counter that you know i was drinking quite a bit i was i was you know self-medicating to try and get my mind off it and as well as to honor them by drinking for the boys and it was just a weird time man i just couldn't figure out myself because trying to get comfortable in the civilian world being an army ranger i had a lot of pride in what I did. And then the rest of the world really doesn't understand what an army ranger does. Half the people thought I was a park ranger. And so like <laughs> dealing with all that it was never easy. And I, I tell people, I think I was very fortunate to have kids to that motivated me to stay busy and active in, in creating some kind of revenue for them that it kept my mind free of all the other thought processes that were killing me inside. You get that first job, if you mentioned correctly, it was in Border Patrol. Do you find yourself comparing that to the military often? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of similarities. You know, um, any kind of tactics, is, it feels similar, you know what I mean? I mean, you're around a bunch of guys that maybe 1% or 2% have military experience, and those 2% maybe were tactical experience, you know, um, and, and you're out there kind of – sneaking up on guys. And so I was able to use a lot of my military skills to help me be, try and be better at the job. Um, but it also brings back a lot of memories, you know, carrying an M4, carrying an M4 at night, wearing night vision goggles and smelling burnt trash and, and, and burnt sh and, and like shit, uh, reminds you of, you know, some of Afghanistan, you know what I mean? And so mm -hmm. th there's a lot of similarities there. And there's a lot of reasons why I struggle with post-traumatic stress at the time as well is, detaching myself from scenarios and, and, and trying to realize like where I'm at, like, you know, I've had some incidents that were, were really weird because like I wasn't ready to let go or I was still struggling with post-traumatic stress and didn't want to accept it. But then all of a sudden now you see me chasing a guy wearing, holding an M4, wearing night vision goggles and have a similar sense of someone who from Afghanistan or a Mexican national walking for 14 days, they had this similar body odor. And um, all that shit will throw you for a loop, man. And, you know, and I, I almost feel like I was got into law enforcement too soon. Really? Why? Because I wasn't, I was, I wasn't emotionally ready for it. You know, I was, I think I needed counseling early on. I could have easily made some mistakes that would have put me in prison. You know, just think sure, about yeah. military, you know, ROE is different, you know, <laughs> rules of engagement in, in, 
in the military are a lot more lax than, you know, we're not trying to kill or capture terrorists organizations on the border it's just illegal immigration you know and sometimes you might have drug trafficking organizations but at the same time there's still a different roe and uh, when you forget that in the moment it could be very crucial to your career and your life so i um you know i've gotten pretty close calls and and that's where i was like man i need to get some help because i'm going to end up hurting someone that um puts me in prison yeah, I remember having that conversation uh, after my first deployment with a policeman who was a buddy of mine. He worked in Baltimore City. And, uh, you know, you'd always say, listen, man, you know, thank you for what you do. You had such a tough job. And I looked at him and I said, bro, <laughs> I would not want your job. Your job is a thousand times tougher than mine. You know, killing bad guys was easy. I mean, in, in that sense, the, the, the rules of engagement made my job a lot easier. What they had to deal with every day on the streets, I would want no part of ever. Yeah, it's it's tough, man. And, you know, those guys do the job day to day for 20, 30 years, yeah. you know what I mean? We have some time to debrief ourselves with uh, six months to a year in between deployments. And so, um, you know, I, it does want to say, I just think I wasn't ready to get thrown into it and, and I fully engulfed myself, but it wasn't a healthy version of me. And so, you know, I had to, I had to seek some counseling and, and try and get myself um, centered and so I could be better for the job. Just with counseling, I'm curious, was there a seminal moment for you where the light clicked where it went on and you're like, holy Lord, this is what is happening to me and I can see it now. You know, partly, you know, I had a counselor and she was, her name is Tanya Glenn. You guys look her up any, anywhere you can. Tanya Glenn's an incredible counselor. And she's like, she tells me, I don't care about your feelings. Fuck your feelings. What I care about is the fact that you've been through a lot of stress and the brain has not allowed you to, Right. So we have these cortisol dumps and all this stuff, all this, all these magic words that she'll tell you. But essentially, you know, the reason I had post-traumatic stress is because I wasn't allowing myself to, you know, my brain wasn't allowing the, the, the chemistry wasn't allowing myself to process one of these experiences into a memory. And so it was so profound and I was having trouble sleeping and sleeping turned into, I had to drink to help myself get to sleep. And then that's like this downward spiral of a million other things that happen when you're not sleeping and you're drinking to put yourself to sleep. And so, you know, when she was able to just be like, fuck your feelings, like that was like, yo, that's the weirdest approach I've ever heard, you know, and I was willing to listen. And then I was willing to realize like, yeah, man, I am self-destructive as all hell. Like I'm doing all this to myself. And there, at one time there was a moment when I realized like, why am I putting myself through pain? Why am I, why am I damaging myself? in my friend's honor that didn't make sense. Like I tuned to, you know, they didn't blend. It wasn't, a, it, it just didn't work. And that's when like my whole life started to change. When I started wanting to live for them better, like just be better men for them. And, and actually if, if anyone is, is, is a believer in God or anything, you know, looking down on us and being proud, they weren't proud of me taking two shots in the morning just for the hell of it because I respect them and love them. You know what I mean? Right. And so, and so when that mentality shifted, I believe Tanya was a big part of helping me realize that. And then the second, like, it just finally sunk in like, ugh, dude, you're not making anyone proud living this way. You know, and, mm. and I, w I, I went through a divorce. I wasn't seeing my kids. I was just, just, a, just complete terrible person compared to what I know I am and what I want to be in life. And, you know, like people would look at me like, you're an army ranger, like you're a maniac, you know, <laughs> and like that's not what I want for my own community. I want people to look at me as, as a, as, as a, someone who is an army ranger in the background and say, yep, that's an army ranger. This guy is all around lives the creed. And, you know, I definitely wasn't. And something clicked, man, whether it was Tanya's words of wisdom and, and, and her help with, with counseling or, you know, maybe too many, a lot of things aligned itself, but that's when I stopped kind of punishing myself. It's incredible, man. It's a, it's awesome that you have such clarity about it now and can recall it and admit it. I, I mean, you know, that that's inspiration for everybody else. And I think that's a, that's a huge thing that even for those struggling with everything that if somebody else can get through, get through it, they probably can do it too. Yeah. I appreciate it, man. All right. So you uh, get out of law enforcement slash border patrol and uh, whatnot, but you make your way into the entertainment field. Well, also, you, you have a, a whole bunch of other businesses you had on the side, right? Starting with Article 15, you had that with a friend years back. How did that whole thing yeah. start? Yeah. 
that's actually what started the whole entertainment space. You know, I'm in El Paso. My buddy's in El Paso. He started making these viral videos of him just blowing shit up. He's an army ranger. We we were in the same unit. And so he's like, hey, I'm in town. You want to you wanna shoot a video with us? And I was like, yeah, man. And it was it was Matt Best, Jared Taylor, and me, you know, and us three created these videos. It was really Matt's idea. I was just like an actor, essentially, if you will, to to play the skit characters um, that we were trying to portray on film. And we were doing like military humor comedy, right? Everybody knows who Matt Best is. He's like one of the biggest names in the, in the veteran community. But me and him, we started these videos with, you know, me, him, and Jared, and they took off, man, like viral type shit, right? And so. How do you capitalize on viral numbers? This is early on in, in social media marketing and, 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 and content creation. We put a, a slate at the end of a video showing the new T-shirts that we're making from Article 15. And we started to, re- we started to notice as the numbers went up on our videos, so were our T-shirt sales. And this became our process for the next three years. We would make these funny videos making fun of military personnel such as ourselves – we would create new shirts that are edgy, funny, crazy, wild, you know, and they would sell. And we would do this for, for three years. And in these three years, we were able to, you know, we did Article 15 clothing. We, that, clo- that company became a, you know, a million-dollar company. And then from there, we, we put a lot of our money towards the Lead Singers Whiskey. And, and eventually, we did Range 15 was a movie. Mm-hmm. And then, and, and if you keep following that track, that's when Black Rifle Coffee got started with Matt JT and, and Evan. You know, I was a part of the, the, the beginnings processes of that, but then, you know, I ended up going my own way. But all this came from the same concept of make a funny video, put it online, and then generate the following and generate, you know, it's, it's, it's capitalism. It's here's our shirts. Here's what we do. Here's what we put out. We fund our living by putting cool shirts and funny videos and people supported it. And it was an incredible time. It was a incredible time to see what the community would come support us and, and believe in us and, and, and find humor in our videos. And that was what started my entertainment world. I did theater in college, right? I'm trying to become academically ineligible and stay academically ineligible in college. So I'm taking these easy classes. I did, I did stage crew for a while lighting. And then I did um, theater and doing theater I was just writing this down the other day. It was like my, my acting coach or the, the theater teacher asked me to do an improv of me trying to sneak back into my house after a long night of drinking. Very s- simple thing to do for me since that was kind of a daily occurrence. And so I did it. And he was like, you know, later after class, he pulled me aside and says, I really think you should think about doing this. Like for real. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, whatever, you know, and boom, ignored him and continued on with just taking my classes. So now – I'm over here on YouTube and I'm actually getting to use some of this theater skills and improv that I've grown accustomed to already in college. And I'm having a lot of fun with it again. It actually, it kind of burned something in me like, man, I really want to try and do this for real. My goal was from the beginning was I don't want to be a YouTube celebrity. That didn't make sense. Like I, it made sense at the time for what we were doing. But I always knew there was more to what I was doing there, right? I wanted to try and step outside this box of YouTube and try and do something more real. Well, then me and Jerry came up with the idea we wanted to do a movie. So we produced a movie called Range 15. It's an absolutely ridiculous movie. And it's kind of a cult classic and it's, it's edgy, dark, and silly. I'm not the most proud of it because I know I can do better now, but I'm proud of what we accomplished by by six or seven veterans crowdfunding a movie and actually accomplishing that. It was a really beautiful sentiment and, and I love the, I love the, the concept of it, but that was the first step into real acting. And then after years of this, I decided to part ways with the guys. We, you know, I still own lead singers whiskey. I still own Warfighter tobacco. And now I have a lot of my own little ventures. I do myself, but the number one focus right now is in acting and in 2000, I don't know, late 2015, 2016, really, I was able to, to land a role in Mayans MC. Wow. What's harder, becoming a professional baseball player or becoming an actor? Uh, I think the numbers is still baseball. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I baseball, baseball is so hard, man. Because you know, you you know, and I know most people don't understand the levels of trying to become a professional baseball player. 
you got a lot of guys who make the minors, but like getting to the show, yes, that's that's yeah. that's that's not easy. I, I always use like the one percent rule when I would tell people. I said you got to understand. Take any given little league, right? Um, you know, in any given little league, let's just say ten percent of those people go on to be high school standouts. In that ten percent, maybe, maybe you get one percent of those who go on to play high level Division One college baseball. Then one percent of that go on to play. In the minors, and then even less than one percent of that go on to the major leagues. The number gets so infinitely small, it's uh, it's it's hard to even compute sometimes. Yeah, it's crazy. And so now, now let's go to acting. The only reason acting now is becoming, I believe, easier is because we have so many digital platforms looking for content. I've seen shows where actors, I'm like, oh, huh, I'm curious what they've done before, and you see that they're fairly new. Acting's not easy. Um, you know, I tell people like I used to spend my life kicking in doors and using my brute strength to to exist. And now in acting, all that goes out the window. No one cares about how strong you are. It's like how strong you are as an actor. Like how are you using your emotions to to emote and, and have people who are watching believe it? That's a different world for me. And that's been a challenge. But as well as that's been the excitement of why I, I fell in love with the acting side of things. I'm not sure if you've ever been asked to cry in a scene or not, um, but if you have, do you draw on those sad moments about the loss of your friends to sort of really of get course. the emotion running? Of course. I just did a movie where I cried. I swear I cried every every damn scene. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's an emotional week for me. It's, you, know, if, you know, I did this movie. It's called uh, Lucy Shimmers and the, the, the Prince of Peace. And it's, it's probably not going to come out until – uh, I think December it's, it's a Christmas movie and, um, it's an emotional film and it's a Christian, it's, it's loosely a Christian film, but it's, it's, it's not, it isn't, it isn't, I don't know how to say that, but either way, you know, out of five days of filming, six days of filming, I cried four of those days mm-hmm. and, um, damn, it's, it's, it, it drains you, but definitely uh, the way the process, like every actor has a process. Like imagine every fighter has their own way of training for a fight. Um, every actor has his own process and how he prepares for each scene or each emotion. You know, whether you're going to be angry or you're going to be sad. And so me um, working on the the emotional scenes of crying, uh, I definitely draw from personal life. And, you know, I've had a lot of hardships even outside of the military, you know. And so I really kind of have to read the script and – I put myself into that character and I find something in my life that is very relatable and it, it becomes easy. It becomes a, a very honest moment in filming because you're genuinely living through what that character is experiencing. What's scarier for you? Anything you experience in the military, whether it be in combat or being on stage for the first time, you know, and, and doing those, doing those lines or, or acting for the first time and, and getting those lines out. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel like there's anything scary in acting. <laughs> you know, I really know. You, you know, what's scary for me right now is like all this craziness going on in, in, you know, with the virus, or we just had an earthquake, right? Like, what scares me is protecting my family now, right? And like, in a crazy world we live in these days, is is getting them prepared for the the madness of the future. And so that's my biggest fears right now. And I think those that definitely scares me more than combat because now I am. Well, it's lack of control, right? Yeah, There's dude, a semblance of control in combat. Yeah. Even though it's chaotic and you really have no control, you feel like you do. Yes, and when you have no control, God, man, nothing drives me more nuts than that. Like when my kids hurt themselves accidentally, you know, I, I lose my mind like, oh, my God, what are you doing? <laughs> I do everything I can to help you and you go and hurt yourself. So it's just those are my fears is raising these kids, you know, Acting is is I wouldn't I don't want to say easy, but it's nothing scary in my opinion. I think it's all a fun challenge. And uh, you know, look, man, we used to live a life where we're going overseas, and the biggest fear was getting shot in the face, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't really have that fear anymore. And so it almost makes everything else in life uh, somewhat attainable. <laughs> and and so in film and television, it's an easy thing for me to show up to work and and play a character. I actually love it. It's it's somewhat therapeutic for me personally. And um, there's nothing scary about showing up and just being willingness to to have emotion. I think it's actually saved me, to be honest, 
because I grew up in a machismo Latino household where crime sure, is, yeah. is, is girly. And, and then I go into special operations where, you know, we, you know, any kind of emotion is a weakness. And now I'm in a position where like, I can be honest and I can, I can express and I could release anything that's pent up and inside. And so definitely, uh, is become something that I believe has saved my life. All right, I want to ask you a two-part question here. Go for it. I want Sergeant First Class Vargas to give one piece of advice to Private Vargas, and then I want uh, Vincent Vargas, the actor right now, to give one piece of advice to Vincent Vargas, the guy who was getting his first break in acting. Oh, man. Okay, Sergeant First Class Vargas talking to Private Vargas, the number one thing is, like, PT, man, like, as much as PT was easy for me, I think it could have done better, you know? So I would tell young me is like, focus on your PT, make sure that your PT is where it needs to be at all times. And at the same time is watch your drinking. Your drinking can be the downfall of your career. And, and easily, I believe, you know, the military kind of brews a drinking culture, um, by accident or maybe by not accident, but, um, that could be the downfall for anyone's career. And, and it easily came close to mind a few times. And so be smart, private Vargas. Don't be a dummy. <laughs> so uh, what does Vincent know, Vargas now tell the guy who's about to get his first break in acting? You know, that's a tough one. You know, it really is, is, um, willingness to, to just be open. I think I could, you know, acting is the fear of being vulnerable can slow down anyone's career. And I think in acting, if you want to be an actor, you don't have to conform to what everyone else tells around you. You just got to be honest with who you are and what you represent in life and show up and be honest character. And if you can be honest with yourself and be vulnerable with those emotions, I believe that uh, people will see that and, and people will want that. And that's going to be better for anyone's career. If you came across a veteran right now who you thought was struggling or looked like he was struggling, he or she was struggling, I should say, what would you say to him? Biggest thing I tell people, man, is like, let's talk. Let, let's, let's get down to the bottom of it. And in the end, most of these guys, um, we find, I find that I help, um, you know, they're making bad decisions on their part, right? They don't want to look in the mirror and have, be accountable for their own actions, right? Like, I can't find a job. Like, well, how's your drinking, right? Like, I can't hold on to a relationship. Well, how's your drinking? You know, I, you know, I feel like I have post-traumatic stress. I was like, okay, well, let's get counseling. You know, my biggest thing is like, we have to look into the mirror. You know, we have to identify our own issues. We have to fix those issues first, and then other things will start to align themselves. You know, I tell people, you know, you can, you can lead a veteran to counseling, but will he take it? And that's just straight, honest truth. Like, are you helping yourself? And if you're helping yourself to the full capacity, things will fall into place. And, and from then we can actually reach out to so many different resources and people can help. And so veterans who struggle, they have to look into the mirror first and identify what is the issue. Most underlying issues is drinking or addiction, you know, and that's, that's the first thing we need to hit. Let's, let's combat that. Your marriage is falling apart because of that. Yeah. Anyone's would, you know, even a civilian who's addicted, you know, it's, everyone's going to struggle with these things. And so number one, let's get down to the bottom of what is it, right? Like people say, oh man, my demons, right? And I always tell them, tell, explain to me, like break down exactly what your demon is, right? And they're going to tell you. It's going to be addiction. It's going to be PTSD. It's going to be whatever. And that's where we need to start looking at first. You know, if there was a way to sort of test every veteran as far as whether they're struggling with PTSD, whether they are having issues that they're holding on to, do you think that we would quickly advance this? You know, as we sit here with this virus thing, we want to test, right? We want to figure out who's got it and who doesn't. Is there a way when you talk to people that you can realize right off the bat this person's not where they need to be? You know, I I've, I've, I think we should have a better process of people getting out of the military. And with that, getting out of the military is a full, comprehensive evaluation. I'm talking mentally, emotionally, and biologically. Like, let's do – let's run some blood work. How is their testosterone? Has it dumped? That's a big reason why a lot of guys aren't feeling like themselves depression and everything else right and so like if we had a better process of guys getting out doing full physical for for brain 
looking for TBIs, looking for post-traumatic stress, looking for, for, um, you know, chemical imbalances, whether it be mentally, you know, in the brain or even chemically in the, in the, in the blood, we hit these right there. You let's hit post-traumatic stress, TBIs and, and blood work right away. You're going to be able to identify what the fuck, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that is huge in its own. And then addiction, that's the other part that kills us, right? So if we're able to put guys through like this two-month process, like, hey, you're getting out of the military, you're going to have to stay here at this hotel for, for three months, whatever. And they go through a full out-processing of evaluation and getting them where they need to be and now leaving at kind of this homeostasis, this is the best we can get you right now. Now you have your blood work in, so your, your testosterone levels are normal. You've gone through counseling, whatever kind of counseling. You've gone your TBI clinics and made sure we don't have TBI issues and you don't have addiction issues. Bing, bang, boom. Let's set you out into the world. Reset, boom, start over. You're a civilian with, with everything you've got going for you and, and benefits. Go. I think that'd be the best case scenario. We send people off you know, in, with better or if not you know, fixed compared to what we got them. Well, the biggest problem, th that attitude has to change at the top because there's a general attitude, right, of it's not Vincent Vargas, it's not Mark Zeno. It's Sergeant First Class, it's Lieutenant Colonel, and it's we have a slot, you fill it, here we go. Everybody's a commodity, yeah. right? They, they treat right. them as a commodity from the moment they get in to the moment that they leave because when Sergeant First Class Vargas leaves, all I got to do is find another Sergeant First Class to fill that spot. And so yeah. what happens after that isn't really our concern, and that, that sort of mentality has to change at the highest levels of our military. And if they don't start pushing it from the top down, that will never change. I mean, there are guys like, you know, you and, and other great people and other veterans out there, you know, resources like this podcast where we talk about these kind of things on a routine basis, but that's not enough to overcome the sheer number of, of volume of people who need to be, you know, addressed. Uh, I agree. I agree. So what's next for you? Uh, how do you know when you're going to be done acting? Uh, you know, I just kind of live day to day with it, man. Um, you know, the dream is to – I'm starting a production company here soon and trying to produce some quality veteran content as well as civilian content. I think a big part of us is not – we have to also let go of those layers of, of the veteran and, and, and allow ourselves to be a civilian. You know, And if we don't, then there is no integration, right? And so I want to be able to create the stories and tell the stories of those that deserve to be told as well as to create new stories of, of success, right? There's guys that are out there making movies right now. Uh, and it seems like every time the veteran is broken and the veteran never finds success, you know, and, you know, there's, you know, Will Garner or whatever that movie was, Sergeant Garner or whatever, um, you know, it, it had the right sentiment. It, it had the right idea. And then it ends with him losing everything again. And I'm like, fuck me, dude. Like, we have to stop telling that story because it's becoming it's becoming the personality of the veteran community to the civilian world where they all think we're broken. They all think we struggle, but it's because we haven't spent the time in mainstream media identifying successful veterans. And I'm not talking me. I'm talking bigger than me. I'm talking the guys that show up to work in a suit and a tie who are running corporations, who are making their millions, who are making huge advances and who are donating a lot of money to veteran communities those guys don't walk around with a freaking veteran hat all day saying, I'm a veteran, I'm a veteran, I'm a veteran. They say, look, that's part of my life. That's one chapter. And now I'm a corporate manager or I'm a corporate you know, official. And we're continuing this mission. We're, we're continuing to find success. We're not telling that story. And we're having a lot of guys who are, I believe that are kind of stuck in purgatory of the veteran community and, and won't allow themselves to grow past it. You know, and guys like, you know, podcasts like this and, and telling and allowing people to, to tell their piece is important because, you know, we are stagnant currently, I feel, in our community because we're not going past it. Even Hollywood only sees us as broken and hurt and blah, you know, and, and that is a systemic issue because my mom, who who is my mother, should know better, but always tells me like, Vinny, veterans really have a hard time with suicide. I'm like, mom, the world. United States of America has this problem with suicide. Firefighters, law enforcement officers, and teenagers right now are through the roof. It's not just a veteran issue. It's a societal issue. And, you know, and when we start taking that, you know, uh, stereotype as ours only, um, it affects us. You know, society sees us as damaged and society will start to judge us based on what they believe of us. And that is not a good thing for the future of us. And so – me being in film and television want to change that mindset, want to tell the story and want to, to help uh, bring more veterans into film and television because I believe 
and this is just the route that I'm taking in my life, is the biggest voices and influences in our world, we already know this, are social media influencers and, and celebrities. Well, all these celebrities don't have our experiences, and so they can't speak for us, but they do have empathy for us. Well, why can't we get veterans in there who can speak for ourselves in positions that the world hears, millions and millions of ears uh, will hear our story straight from our fucking mouths? Yeah, and I think the most poignant thing you said, at least what stuck with me, is that any veteran, any successful veteran who's out there, as you said, they're not. There's they don't wear a star on their shoulder that says veteran. You know, like there's no way to know who these people are. And guess what? You know what we're taught in the military? Don't brag about your shit, right? You know, like right. You, you don't you don't rub that in people's faces. That's not who we are. We we, we practice humility and, and army values and things of that nature. And so unless somebody directly asks us. I don't run around and say, hey, I shot people in combat. You know, come hire me. Like, it, 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 it's just not the way the transaction goes. And to that end, I wish they were more easily identifiable. But in the same sense, it's kind of counterculture to everything that we're taught. So yeah. it's, it's a real tough juxtaposition to say, who are the great veterans out there without being in a room of people and asking them to raise their hand? And even if you did, if you asked me, hey, Zinn, are you a great veteran? I wouldn't put my hand up because I don't think I'm great. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, I, I mean, you know, I, I've done a lot of cool weird. stuff. I've been fortunate yeah. to do a lot of different things, and the military has been great to me, and I'm still in after 20 years, you know, in the Guard. It, uh, would I consider myself great? No. I mean, it's just not, not the way we look at ourselves. It's a strange conundrum, man, that, that somehow we had to find the answer for being uh, better role models for our youth in the community. Right. We have a lot of 24, 25 year old guys coming out at their six year enlistments starting at 17 years old. And they're taking what I did on Article 15 videos or taking what other people do like Grunt Style and, and, and everyone else. They're taking these videos as face value of what a veteran should act like, you know, and that is toxic. It's not good. Those are characters and people don't understand social media is a form of marketing for us big companies trying to to make money. We have to market, and those videos that you're seeing are characters. They are not real-life people. No one can live like that, right? Like not healthy. And so when I say that is you got the youth coming out and watching these videos and saying, hell yeah, man, let's drink Jameson. Let's do this, and let's blah, blah, and this is what veterans do, and we have dark, crude humor, and we – okay, got it. But you can't – that doesn't sustain itself in a real environment in the, in the community. It's, it's actually a really bad personality trait, and – you know what? What we did in videos was marketing. I'm sorry to tell you the truth, but that's all it ever is. And if you take what we do as face value, you're wrong. And and I'm sorry. And that's where I had to walk away from that world because I didn't feel like we were leaving a good mark on our own community by you know marketing these funny videos. They were funny and they were comical, but people believed it was honest character, and it's not. That was actually a gimmick you know, that we, we portrayed mm -hmm. and, and, and that's, and that, and you know, the youth is very impressionable, man. And a lot of these kids are looking for someone to follow. They looking for the leaders in the community and you got two special operations guys who are making these videos and, and, and it's very easy to influence the youth and like, we're the coolest dudes you've ever met. And in, 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 in all honesty, like, I don't think we realized the repercussions of what we were doing. We were just having fun, you know? I think the other thing, and you sort of dance around this, and if you follow me on Twitter, you hear me talk about this all the time. Um, but the other thing I think that hurts us in, with the masses, well, it's twofold. One, we're still at war for 20 years, and people have forgotten that, right? Like, we have become such an afterthought, and combat has become such an afterthought because we've been doing it for two consecutive decades. We, you know, we always use the hashtag, Forgotistan, right? Because there are people out there, there are soldiers out there who are still dying, you know, on a routine basis, and it's like it is the sixth story on the news behind everything yeah. else. It's not even important to anybody anymore. And I think the other piece of it is is that we're used more as propaganda and, and than anything by, you know, other companies out there. It's Military Appreciation Night, or let's sell camouflage this, and let's honor this person on the field. And, you know, that's all the wrong presentation of who we are and what we're about. It, it, there, there, there's not the story of the guy who left the military and went on to be successful in business. It's just, thank you for your service. Here's, you get to stand on the field and here's some tickets to a baseball game and, and move yeah. on. You know, it's very transactional for the civilian side. Yeah. And it's just, you know, <laughs> it's this funny thing, like Kobe Bryant died and you know, you post about it. And then, then you got the angry veteran community side of it. Like veterans die every day. Like, yeah, 
we know that, you know, but personally, I don't know every single one of these veterans and do I feel bad for them? Yeah, I've been posting this for 20 years. How many people I feel bad for? You know what I mean? And then you have a guy who's influential in, in many aspects. You know, I'm going to post about that because I grew up in LA. And it's this funny, weird thing when like people, everyone now has a voice on social media and they have these opinions and, and, you know, they feel like the veteran community is not being represented enough. And my head is like, man, we need to focus on more positive than the negative. And it, it always sucks to hear when a soldier dies. Like we just lost two special forces guys. One was a raging regiment dude. So it yeah. always gets near and dear, dear to my heart. And, um, but at the same aspect is like, you know, we have a hundred, I think it's 160,000 people die a day. I don't see any of these people posting about every single person who's died. You know what I mean? Like we, we post, you know, I think my buddy said it best, like, the military doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have the monopoly on, on grieving death. You know what I mean? Like everybody grieves sure. death in their own way. And so we have to respect that. And we can't just be the angry side of every conversation because it's not focused on us again. You know, that's hundred percent fair. Yeah. yeah. Well, Vincent, listen, man, it, it's been an amazing career from the military side. I, I always love it. You know, we tell a lot of stories on this podcast, but I, I almost enjoy the stories more where their post-military career clearly trumps their military career, if that makes any sense. And that's not to downplay what you did in the military, but the secondary, the next chapter of your life, the next chapter of the book in your life has so much more potential to help out veterans than I think anything you may have done in combat. I appreciate it, brother. I believe the same. And, and, you know, that's what I'm striving for, you know, and my goal is to be, you know, uh, if it's just a, a blueprint for others to be successful in the acting and film and television world, and so be it. And hopefully someone can come and take my position so I can sit back and watch the show instead of uh, working so damn hard right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys can give uh, Vincent Vargas a follow on Twitter at the real underscore Rocco, R-O-C-C-O. Uh, listen, I love your content, man. Keep it up. And again, thank you so much for, for the time. I know you're super busy and uh, certainly for your candor and honesty and being willing to open up to us and and tell us your your personal story and some personal details about it. It means a lot, man. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Vincent Vargas, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. All right, take care. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.